to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dixie Cochran. Ahoy hoy. Ahoy hoy to you as well. And Eddie Webb. Nello. Nello to you too. It feels like it's been a while, and yet we only recorded last week. And in fact, we were only speaking to each other about a few seconds ago. And before that, we had a meeting on Monday. So it hasn't been that long <laughs> at all. But how are you both? <laughs> I mean, here's the thing about this, like, ongoing quarantine pandemic thing is that I know that I have talked to a few of my other friends about this. We're having the same issue. That's that we are, like, losing time. Yeah. Like, you'll turn around and think, like, oh, I meant to do that yesterday, but I'll do it today instead. The thing you meant to do yesterday was actually a thing you meant to do two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, or you'll, like, I have had multiple days where I've woken up and thought that, like, Christmas was coming up. Yeah. And like it's just weird stuff like like that, and it's because you know, I think that we mark our time as people with like, oh, I went to that thing, I went to this museum, I went on this trip, I saw these people for dinner, you know, whatever, like mm-hmm. just little stuff that you're used to doing. I I I went to the park even, you know. And now that we're not doing any of that, I'm just like, I don't know what time means. Well, I was um, having a conversation with one of my friends recently, and it's a bit depressing in a way, but um, I found it was quite insightful to the current, I guess, psychology of what's going on. And um, he's someone that travels a fair amount, or used to, Mm. before the pandemic sort of locked that down. And he was remarking upon how... Uh, these past years were going to be the years where he was planning on settling for a while and, you know, maybe um, taking his relationship a little more seriously and and so on and so forth. And um, various things occurred with uh, this friend. um, Relationship broke up, could no longer travel. Various aims of settling down and finding a job, of course, didn't work out uh, because of everything going on. And it got me thinking about how, of course, right now, and reasonably so, there's an awful lot of concern for how children are going to develop as a result of the extended quarantine, Uh, how many children aren't getting to interact with each other, uh, how will this affect a child's psychology as they develop. Uh, But what isn't really being given a lot of focus is how this is going to affect single people. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's quite strange sometimes when you're in a relationship too, of course, seeing the same sort of four walls and faces all of the time. But if you are single, and and some people are perfectly comfortably being so, uh, but if you are single, this is these are potentially two years by the time the majority have got vaccinations, where it's going to be even very difficult to start up a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's going to have been very taxing to take any sort of major steps in a relationship. If you think of what a lot of people get into relationships, they get some people get married and have a kid within two years. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I I've been dating my boyfriend for a little over two years now, and I moved in with him at the beginning of the of the pandemic. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it was like I had a roommate situation that wasn't great. And it was like, well, if like at the time we thought it was going to be, you know, three or four months. <laughs> mm, right. But even that was like, I can't spend three or four months like locked in with these people. Like, I like them very much as people, but not as like people I'm around twenty four hours a day. Yeah. You know. 
And so I moved in with, with, with my, my boyfriend very hurriedly. Like literally it was the three of us brought our cars down with carloads and I still don't have most of my stuff here because it's in Delaware because it's been a pandemic mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and like, luckily we are, we're, we're doing fine, but like, imagine if we hadn't been, you know, what were they supposed to do? Well, yeah, and that's the other side of it. There's people who are in relationships right now who feel like they can't really leave them because they've got nowhere or no one to go to. Yeah. It's not as easy, not that it ever was in some cases, to find a place to stay or move back in with friends or family with all of this going on, depending on any given person's situation. And yeah, it, it just makes one wonder what how people are going to be after things return to normality mm -hmm. uh, and or uh, i you know humans are very much like rubber uh, for the most part a lot of us will just bounce back there'll be a lot of hugging and crying when we all get to see our friends again but right uh, uh, for for the most part i imagine most relationships will kind of return to the status quo but it's still going to be a one to two year gap for some people mm -hmm where their lives just got paused. Uh, yeah, that's uh, kind know. of what it feels like. It yeah. makes it hard to, like, focus on work and, like, moving things forward when it feels like nothing else is moving forward. Yeah. And so, also, yeah, I mean, it's... there are parts, there are parts that are, are changed permanently. Like, you know, we, we talk a lot about going back to normal, but, I mean, that that's, in a lot of ways, it's not going to happen. Our world has been changed. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not shaking ways. hands anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm not touching people at cons unless I like know them really well. Mm -hmm. uh, and also little things like before the pandemic, one of my family's favorite hobbies was going out to restaurants. And now the mm -hmm. thought of going to a restaurant gives me like, I, I have trouble breathing. It's, it's a, that anxiety. Just yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely see people who are like, living in places where they can go to restaurants and they're like oh we went and it was you know only 30 percent capacity and i'm like but the servers and the cooks and like you don't know like i i can't handle that right now right. like until i'm yep. vaccinated i can't imagine going to a restaurant and like having someone wait on me you know mm -hmm. like i got annoyed early like i'm i'm writing nasty letters to my apartment because i keep running into members of staff in the hallways to have their mask below their noses you know mm -hmm. yeah i'm like i live here like what do you want me to do? Ugh, uh, yeah, well, so obviously it applies to us a great deal, but that idea of going back to conventions, I know I've mentioned it a few times, but there is... I have no desire at this point, even after the vaccination. Now, knowing now, and I guess we always knew, but every single time we go to a con, someone or more than one person, goes back with what is often called con crud. Yeah. And that's sometimes a mixture of... It's not just you catch an illness. It's often a mixture of exhaustion, drinking too much that lowers your immune system, and therefore mm -hmm. you become more susceptible to catching something. Uh, and, and, of course, being around lots and lots and lots of people uh, right. who are just getting close enough and touching enough things so that if they do have something, you're more likely to catch it. I think I am more conscious of that now, uh, not just because I'm I'm afraid of catching COVID, but I don't really want to catch the flu or pneumonia right. <laughs> yeah. or, yeah. or any other damn illness. Uh, but I can't 
Howard Hughes myself and stay indoors for the rest of my life either. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how all of that develops, what safeguards, if any, are put in place by major conventions. Because right now, I think the mindset, the perception of how an in-person convention works is pretty much the same as it used to be. And if it's expressed in any other way where right. oh, well, you always have to maintain a certain distance from like stands and personnel, then right. people are thinking, well, that loses much of what appeals to me uh, about a convention. So where do you find the line? Or is so- it a risk that you just prepare to take if you're going to a con? So something that was interesting to me since we're talking about convention is um, I recently got a survey. I don't know if you, either of you got it from Gen Con talking about no. what might, okay. Um, uh, and it may be because I am in their system with a badge because for long, boring reasons. Um, I got an email saying, <laughs> you know, we like to answer some questions about a potential in-person Gen Con this year. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Uh, <laughs> and it was a lot of questions like, um, would you be comfortable attending a convention that did not require vaccination records? Would you be comfortable uh, um, that did not require blah? Um, and then at first I was like, oh, fuck no, Jesus Christ. You know, it's like, this is bare minimum. But then later on, I realized what they were doing is, is that later questions like, okay, which things are absolute requirements for you to attend? Check these boxes. So they're trying to get both sides of that to get more accurate yeah. data, which which makes sense. Right. Um, so, I mean, they're clearly things they're thinking about are uh, you have to have vaccination records before you even attend uh, on file. Uh, you have to have your temperature being checked every day. Um, everyone has to wear masks. Uh, they may not have games around the table. Mm. They may reduce the amount of personal gaming at the convention. These are all things that are at least being considered enough to be asked on a questionnaire. And on one level, the part of my brain that doesn't want to go to, to restaurants uh, is saying, well, thank you for thinking about these things and considering them. But the other part of my brain is going, is that really Gen Con anymore? Yeah. Well, one of the things that conventions uh, often complain about, convention organizers, is the amount of space that is taken up with gaming tables compared to the amount of money gained from gaming tables. Right. Which mm-hmm. is very low. Uh, because usually, especially if it's a role-playing game, you've got about five or six people sat around a table for four hours not buying things. And if they are there for a full day of gaming, yes, they may well have paid for their game, but that's usually a far lower price than they would have paid if they were literally shopping. So, right, whereas, it, like, or even, like, um, if, if they're playing, like, say, Magic the Gathering, um, that table can seat three or four more times people because those games end faster, they get up and walk away, and the table sits down. They've already paid for that event, too. Exactly, exactly. It's, and, yeah, this is why you don't often see full-scale miniatures wars, you know, uh, Warhammer-type things at right. conventions, unless it's a Warhammer convention. Also because mm-hmm. it's really a pain to bring your whole army to a gun. And yet some people do. <laughs> oh, no, I know. Oh, no. Believe, believe me. I know those people. I used to work at a gaming store. I am very familiar. <laughs> I can get very inventive without a pack of backpack. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, it will be interesting to see how it all unrolls in in the coming year and the year after and and what our involvement will be. So like here's here's a, a kind of weird thing that I've been I've been noodling on and this this might be something that's 
super serious for our podcast, but whatever. Um, so as a, as a cis woman, uh, growing up, it's always like, you know, you're a little suspicious of people around you, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get taught to be suspicious of men, both by men and by like your parents. (laughs) Right. And so you're always kind of like, there's, there's this feeling of like, you're only as safe as the least safe person in your vicinity. Mm Mm-hmm. And that now, now everyone understands that. And it's kind of interesting that everyone understands that now. Like all my, you know, cishet male friends are kind of like, I'm scared of other people. And I'm like, oh, so you're like me all the time. Like, (laughs) I have to, you know, I, I'm constantly amazed because my boyfriend will wear like noise canceling headphones and go running. And I'm like, I don't wear, like, I I wear one earbud so that I can hear what's around me and hear Mm -hmm. people around me and make sure there's no one near me, you know? um when i'm like walking at night or whatever and so now everybody kind of has that feeling like you you all understand that like you're only as safe as the least safe person near you and it's, it's, it's safe from covid specifically but yeah i hadn't made that direct connection but certainly i cross the street if there's someone coming towards me i don't recognize i yeah but i've been um, doing that my whole life <laughs> right exactly um and, and i hadn't connected that exact dot but now as you're saying it, yeah there is a lot of connectivity um I quibble that everyone recognizes, except there's a lot of people who are just completely in denial. Right. Um, as everyone around me who won't wear a goddamn mask has proven. <clears throat> okay, so er- er- everyone that I interact with. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Right. <laughs> I was just taking the opportunity to be salty at my neighbors because fuck them. Um, but I mean, it, it's it, it goes back to kind of the dynamic of the industry you're working in. Is that it's been great that virtual tabletops were there and are continuing to grow right now. Um, so people can continue to game in the st- style very close to what we originally played in. Yeah. The but, great virtual horror as of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, if you want to come to virtual horror it should be playing right now as you listen to this or very soon after. There you, you go. We get this. <laughs> <laughs> That's something virtual, uplifting. Virtual horror But, um, uh, but I mean, one of the things that my family talked about, because we, we had um, a couple of D&D games here at the house, and um, uh, David actually was getting the Dungeon in a Box campaign, so we were just playing those. And, of course, obviously those have been building up in our house. Um, and when I was talking about organizing them, he's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to run that game again. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it, I just don't know when we're going to be a place where it's like having people who we don't live with in our house for a long periods of time. Eh, maybe. I mean, I mean, I feel like once we're all vaccinated, maybe. Like, I, I, I've been talking to my neighbors that I'm friends with, because um, we always joke about, like, we'll, we'll play Jackbox and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, y'all are 30 feet away, and we can't hang out, because they live, like, one floor down and across the hall. Right. And it's very silly that we can't, like, be in the same apartment to play Jackbox, because, mm-hmm. you know, that would make sense. <laughs> um, but, like, my boyfriend is half vaccinated. Um, I think he's going to be full vaccinated, like, next week. Uh, and I think one of one of them is getting vaccinated because she works at a dermatologist's office. And then I'm on the slate for like, I think April or so is when they're going to go wide with it. Mm-hmm. So like, it's possible that once we're all back, like, I don't think I'll feel weird if we're all vaccinated, you know, to like have four people hanging out in an apartment. Yeah, I, I'm, I am so looking forward to being able to see my friends in person. We did a... Mm-hmm. Uh, role-playing game birthday party last night, actually, at time of recording. Uh, we mm. were playing a game I own called Forsooth, which is uh, basically you improvise an entire Shakespeare play 
uh, with some very, very basic prompts that you create at the beginning of the game. And so the person whose birthday it was decided buy us all pizza uh, beforehand, got it delivered to our houses, uh, also personally delivered some birthday cake and beers to our houses. Um, along with false mustaches and party hats, that kind of thing. And so we were just we we, <laughs> nice, we nice. meet we meet up every Friday to play games anyway, or meet up online uh, every Friday to play games. Right. But we have a special uh, session because he is an actor, and so I thought doing a Shakespearean style role playing game would be good fun. So yeah, uh, we did uh, forsooth, and it was fantastic, and would have only been made more fantastic if we'd been able to do it in person. And I greatly miss the ability to see people, uh, as I've mentioned many times now. But I'm too hard headed to actually say, "Oh, I'm never going to catch COVID and just go up up the gut to people who don't <laughs> right. want to be in their presence." Um, or even if they did, I'd probably say, right. "No, I'll, I'll wait until um, I've been vaccinated." But yeah, uh, I, I think um, I will. It will be interesting how I feel once vaccines are. Once vaccinations have been been administered to myself and my friends, and right. whether I still feel the need to, oh, should I take my temperature before I go over and see them? Uh, should you know that you know mm. what precautions would I be taking at that point? So yeah, it's uh, it, it's an interesting quandary. Yeah, yeah. I've got. Uh, I I will say two things. One is that. Coming up in six weeks, I will be having my second quarantine birthday, uh, which is super exciting, let me tell you. Super happy to have turned 35, and I'll be turning 36 <laughs> under the same exact conditions. Um, we are turning 36 this year, right, Matthew? I don't even know what time is. Uh, I thought uh, I was already 36 no, until, no. until a couple of weeks ago, but it turns <laughs> out that I am still 35, which means you are still 35. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Got it. Can uh, I be 35 too? Sure, sure. <laughs> Let's just regress Eddie's age. We're all 35. She's um, at least 10 years younger. We were all born in 1985. Uh, <laughs> yes. I had something else I was going to say, and I've gotten completely distracted by this whole 35 thing. Well, like like a, like a mummy, like a mummy, we pass backwards and forwards through time, and what is age really to the original? Right, there you go. Twenty minutes in, uh, near near enough. Uh, here's something exciting to listeners: if you're a backer of Mummy: The Curse Second Edition on Kickstarter or backer kit, do make sure you've checked your inbox because by now you should have been sent the link to the downloadable PDF yes. of Mummy. Along with a link to our errata form, and for the love of the judges, uh, as the errata form tells you, please don't note that page XXs uh, need to be filled in. I am aware, and uh, any such comments will be deleted without <laughs> being read. And I know there's going to be some funny buggers among you out there who think they're going to be able to sneak in a page XX reference now because I've said it. Well, I will remember who you are. Don't. Now <laughs> <laughs> we'll go backwards in time and find you. Yeah. Did, there was a book recently where somebody did like mention it, but it wasn't because it was an unfilled XX reference. It was because it said page like PG instead of just P, which is our, our style. Huh. And I was like, oh, I appreciate that, actually. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I found some writers saying PG dot instead of P dot. And uh, to them, I say... And they're wrong. Do, 
you know, get good, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> get good, scrub. Get good, scrub. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm very excited to see Mummy go out into the wild and uh, see how it is received. Obviously, whenever it's a core rulebook, especially when it's a core rulebook, it's more likely to draw criticism uh, than a source book because this is where the entry point is for a lot of people. But uh, I have long held on to the idea that I don't care. And I just hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, well, <laughs> there are lots of other games for you to enjoy. But there seriously, are of other op- <laughs> exactly. But seriously, yeah. If you've got any valid criticisms, um, what I mean by valid is if you find any typos, any errors whatsoever, such as us referring to the uh, Usheb being the uh, cunning decree of Nam instead of a name, we are aware. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but if you find anything else along those lines, please tell us. Uh, the one thing we're not going to do is start adding new utterances and affinities off the back of errata, even if there are those you'd like to see. And do keep in mind, the Book of Lasting Death is coming too, and we'll have even more of what you love in Mummy. So I hope you enjoy the second edition. I am very proud of it. I gotta say, I love the art in this one. Yeah, me too. I mean, I like the art in most of our books, but I, just, I really was struck by some of the art in this one. Uh, I would now put this among my top three uh, Chronicles of Darkness core books, partly based on the art, partly based on the fact that I developed it, and partly <laughs> because uh, I think the writers all did a uh, an incredible job. They, I'm really happy with how this got put together. It is undoubtedly oversized. It contains more information than any of the other Chronicles of Darkness core books, and I don't know whether that's something to be proud of, really. But uh, I I was very, very keen to get all those immortals in, ultimately all the timelessness stuff in, and mm-hmm. we've and also to get story hooks in, because everyone knows I like a good story hook, and I have found with too many role-playing games that it pre- they present themselves to the reader as a kind of Here's the world, do with it what you will. And to some storytellers and GMs, that is the perfect invitation, and they do just that thing. To others, they will stare at it blankly and say, well, this is a fantastic world to read about, but I have no idea how to use it. So having more storyteller information than we usually give in Chronicles of Darkness books was very important to me. So, yeah, it's a big one, but that should keep you going through uh, lockdown for a bit longer. Huzzah. Huzzah. What's this episode even about? <laughs> uh, Matthew? Uh, well, we what are we supposed cha- to be talking about? We can change the title if we want to. Uh, we'll probably make a mix of everything <laughs> we've talked about, I think. Uh, the title will well, actually be you... the synopsis. <laughs> right. I was like, because Rich has already announced what this episode's about on his blog. So if we change the t- the topic now, Rich will be retroactively a liar. I mean, but we, we can edit the blog. Yeah, we're mummies, remember? <laughs> uh, so this episode is nominally about how to write or play a good character in a role playing game, because of course we are all elite role players on this podcast. We know how to role play best, and the way you do it. <laughs> Is until now wrong. <laughs> I would not say that. <laughs> uh, 
I went to a games convention once where I was staying in a lodge with a few people, and one of them had made a joke at a table with a GM they didn't know that he just said, I'm, I'm an elite level role player, so I'm going to be judging your GMing very closely. And the GM took this <laughs> with deathly seriousness. And, oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. unfortunately didn't, didn't see the humor in it at all. And... Um, went around the convention afterwards saying, did you hear about this person? He's been calling himself an elite role player. <laughs> and so, yeah, there was a minor bit of gossip and fracas. But <laughs> that, that, that is what we are uh, in, in, the, in the cause of this podcast. So let's, uh, let's start with the obvious. Let's start with the obvious being what makes for a poor character in a role-playing game from your entirely subjective opinion, Eddie. Um, Everyone stare at Eddie. Right, yes. Well, actually, we theoretically could because uh, we, Zencaster changed their UI to cameras now, so um, which is irritating. But uh, no, for me, character, I dislike two broad categories of characters. Characters who are purely reactive. Uh-huh. Um, characters that will only do something if prodded. You know, um, and this is stuff like, well, where's the money in it? kind of mercenaries or um, mm. this is a dumb idea and we won't go because we probably get killed. And then the other kind of broad category are the, the loner characters. Yeah. Uh, the, the characters that will mm-hmm. always break off from the group and do their separate thing. Like, like Wolverine in so many comic books. Uh, and uh, in some games even incentivize that loner character, for example, like Netrunners and in, 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 in older cyberpunk games. Um, and both of them cause problems because neither of them are, are moving the story forward and neither of them are integrating with what the rest of the group wants. So I have always advised people, like, if you're going to make a character, make a character that at least won't leave the group at a drop of a hat and right. also can find reasons to follow the story. Because, I mean, sometimes you can set things up to pretty straightforward okay you're on a mission and the person who runs your organization is giving you the mission go off and do it but sometimes it's the bad things are happening it's pretty clear that you're supposed to go investigate those don't make it a pain for everyone to justify why we're going to do the thing that we're obviously here to do yeah totally i had a friend uh i i had a a role-playing group that i used to play with every weekend when i was younger and i had a guy who would just play these characters that like were so set in their convictions that they would shut down the game. Mm. Like we were playing yeah. a, a Mage Z, uh, Mage the Ascension game at one point, and he was so like we were supposed to go to like Spain, right from the U.S., and he was so weird about the te- te- the te- technocracy that he wouldn't go through any kind of airport or airplane. And so how the hell? Like we spent a whole session trying to charter a boat, and then we never played that game again. <laughs> Like he right. just killed the game because he made it such such a pain to like follow this lead the you know storyteller had set up. Yeah, it's it's interesting because those characters, those lone wolves, those mercs, those sort of self involved types are. I think people are attracted to them because in fiction and uh, other media, they are often cool, they are a bit edgy, they're often characters who are introduced uh, once or twice a season, 
and don't show up again. So there's an air of mystery around them. I guess the it's the sort of Boba Fett style, which of course has been somewhat blown out of the water with the Mandalorian being so popular. Um, but it's still a character who isn't going to get up unless you pay him, as you say, Eddie. And right. it it's uh, it's one that rarely works at the table because it can be cool for the player. And I think it's still, even for the player, it's only cool for the player for a limited amount of time. Even if all of you are mercenaries, I think if you... And I've played many role-playing games where they've all been mission-based. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you are special operatives working for X, and X wishes you to do this mission. You do it, then you go back. I've got a new mission for you, team. And because it's purely professional, I guess, uh, you lose all emotional investment uh, or there, there's never any emotional investment to begin with. And it just becomes a numbers exercise. Uh, again, that's that's my subjective opinion. So that's, to me, a lot of what these uh, lone wolves and mercenaries end up sort of fulfilling. They They can satisfy the player in the short term, but they very rarely satisfy that player or the group in the long term because right. they they are just there to be the hired cannon, and then they go on their merry way and they have no interaction with the I guess side plots and personal elements of the story. Well, I, I think that people like if if you want to play that kind of character, you've got to have some buy-in, right? Mm-hmm. Where like you maybe start off that way. Two, three sessions, you know? But if you're mm-hmm. going to play a long-term game, you have to bond with the other characters. Like, right. your character needs to find a reason to stay with them. Otherwise, why are you still playing that character? Right, and you can play selfish characters. Let's look at, like, Masquerade Requiem. It's like, you know, a, a pretty standard setup is you're playing a coterie of young vampires. The prince tells you to go do blah. And, you okay, yep. well, all the players are... If if you read any amount of Masquerade or Requiem, the prince is going to screw you. I mean, that, that's that's pretty yeah. clear what's probably going to happen. You have to buy into that premise. Okay, when is the trap going to land, and it will that be fun? Um, but I have seen people who are just like, well, or Shadowrun. It's like, well, Johnson's going to screw mm. us, so we just won't take this job. And it's like, then there's nothing to play, you know? Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's one of those things where, uh, as a brief tangent, we've received feedback before from paradox or i have on some of the v5 work that i have developed where if it's a pre-written scenario as an example they don't just want to see scenarios where the prince or the sheriff or this member of the primogen gives you a mission because it doesn't evoke the feel of the game in any particularly strong way it just becomes a mission-based game but the Mm -hmm. the challenge therefore as a developer or as a writer uh, again as i said as a talent is being able to somehow account for players who you're never going to meet and their personal uh-huh. motivation, their characters' personal motivations in a pre-written scenario. It's it's not impossible, and you can kind of build that that stuff in at the front end of a pre-written. Uh, adventure you can kind of find a a facsimile or a template and say if a character has a touchstone the touchstone is compelled to do this and sort of hook them into it like that rather than it always being someone from above telling you go do this but it's uh, it's uh, it's a similar challenge i think to yeah 
playing mercenaries where and Shadowrun is a fantastic example, Eddie, because the number of scenarios of Shadowrun I have played in where one member of the crew at the start of the game meets with a Johnson, says, I don't trust this guy, and blows him away, or you know, or mugs him, or something like that, and that isn't mm. what the GM had planned, means you you've yeah, haha, very funny, you've subverted the the genre again by doing this. Uh, but you have right. also nixed the entire premise of being shadow runners. Uh, you you're no longer mm-hmm. going on a run if you're just going to kill your contact yeah. every single time you meet him. Yeah, in my Cyberpunk Red game that I've been playing with Portable Tales, uh, Mondays at nine PM over on their channel, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we are doing a lot of jobs for shady ass people. Um, but it's that that's how the game works, you know. Like we're doing a lot of like I, I don't trust half the people that we're working with, but that's kind of the point, right? They don't entirely trust me, I don't think, because I'm the newest addition to the team. Like, that that's fine. That's okay. We still have to work together. Also, when it comes to the whole, like, you know, net Netrunner, Deckard-type character, the one in our group, the, the way that we fix that is that we all have, like, communicators at all times. Mm-hmm. So even when he's off doing his own thing, when he's off jacked in, we can still talk to each other. Right. You're not a loner. You're, you're still in, in discussion. Yeah, exactly. Like, maybe he's not with the group physically, but he can, like, tell us things or give us information or, you know, whatever. And that was one thing um, when I ran a V20 game. Uh, I had kind of similar thing is, is everyone in the game, regardless of how long you've been a vampire, had and was comfortable with using a cell phone. Uh, so they could text each other, they could call each other, because I wanted them to have that kind of same thing, a similar kind of connectivity, communication. Um, but again, uh, like, like to go back to your earlier point, Matthew, about how it's on the story they tell her to a degree to kind of give these players in, uh, I think the players also have to give something to work with, right? Definitely. Um, and this goes back to don't make perfect characters. Uh, you know, if, if all your character is like, I'm nothing go wrong and I have no secrets and nothing will bother or phase me, that's boring and doesn't give just the story tell anything to work with so as long as you give them something it's like here's a dark secret here's my character wants to against all odds be a good person you know whatever something beyond just you know either give me the money or nope i, I hate these people i'm gonna go off on my own you have to give something and then then the storyteller can give something and, and that's where the collaboration comes in is like work a little bit in each side of that yeah uh, as i guess uh, i would um throw this over to dixie and ask, uh, and this is uh, a question specifically for for you, about you, of all the myriad characters that you have played, I'd be interested in hearing your view on which one you feel was the best and why they worked so well. Oof, that's rough. Um, Gosh. I have characters that I love, obviously, for various reasons. But I feel like I have to always throw it back to Jane Giant Spain, who I've talked about here before, who was a D&D 5 character. Mm-hmm. I started at level one, like a very, you know, s- simple game. Um, but she was super nuanced and interesting uh, because she was she was a, a chaotic good character, which I find very fun to play because you're always like, this is the right thing to do. And then when Shades of Grey show up, you're like, What? What is that? And you have to like learn about yourself a little bit. 
because uh, you know in the very first session she was like i will kill these goblins because goblins are evil um and then she botched her role killing two goblins and had to befriend them instead um and so like she had a lot of growth that i liked i, I like characters that have a lot of room for growth yeah so characters that might start off kind of one-dimensional but then you know learn over time are really really interesting to me well, I think that's why the when they use the aspirations or amb- and ambitions and and various uh, traits such as that that we use in Story Path are again fantastic indicators for the story guide as yeah. well as the player. It gives yep. the player something to punch for, but if if the story guide is being diligent and reading your character sheets before the game, they also know what kind of thing to build into the story to make the character feel like they have agency and and a purpose in the team. And mm-hmm. sometimes that sometimes that can be quite right. difficult, especially if players have got wildly divergent aspirations uh you know one of them wants to uh, see a ball game uh, with their son or something like that and uh, another one of them wants to defuse a bomb before the week is out uh the two don't necessarily converge until the story guide decides to put a bomb at the ball game right but uh what about what about you eddie what would you uh racking your aged memory <laughs> your favorite, and he's thirty-five. Right, I'm exactly the same age as you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't tell. There's not one um, no, wrinkle but, um, on your uh, on your jar, the jar that's ooh. housing your brain. I I want to jump right. in for one second and amend my answer a little bit before Eddie talks. Oh okay. yes, and go, that go is go just go. that when when I say that she's my favorite, it's partially too because I spent so much time with her. Mm-hmm. A lot of the characters I played in the past few years have been for one shots or like three shots, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah so like I'm I, I I'm enjoying my rocker in Cyberpunk Red. I'm enjoying a lot of other stuff. Matthew just showed up on camera for a second. That was weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, like I I like Sydney, who I was playing for our Trinity game, and I really liked the character uh, Liminal, who I played for my Aberrant game that went a few sessions. But like. I wasn't with them long enough for them to really grow. Like I was with them for a mission or two, you know? And I think that's why like Jane sticks out in my head. My old high school vampire character uh, still sticks out in my head a little bit because I played her for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I, I definitely get more attached to characters the longer I play them. I know some people who like make a character for a one shot and they fall in love with them and that's great. But like, I think that once you get to explore the character a little bit more, I end up being more attached to them. And, and for me, like I like this, yeah, a lot of the characters I've played in, in recent memory um, are relatively short campaigns, uh, one shots, convention games, three, three session games, whatever. Um, uh, so what I try to do is I try to find one way that the character will get along with everyone. One way the character will clash with everyone. And one that I weirdly think worked way better than I expected it to um, was when I played Jack the Pony in uh, Danielle's Chaos <gasps> that Ball game. That was amazing! I love Jack! Because everyone else is making either serious, <laughs> gritty characters or at least semi-serious action characters, and I made a straight-up cartoon character. Um, I mean, but, I was a cartoon character, but I was serious about the world I was from. Right, you know? yeah. yeah that, that's the action adventure. I mean, you're a cartoon character, but still... In the kind of superhero mold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Because I, I was a Sailor Scout from the 2000 Sailor Moon RPG, for those that aren't familiar with this game that we played. Right. Um, and, our, and our characters had, a, had connectivity being animated personas and, and finding, you know, it's like, oh, of course, all problems get solved in 22 minutes. Why, why, yeah. why does it work for you? Um, also, we were but, both 2D. It was weird. Right, yeah. Everyone else looked strange. But, I mean, because he was a hero, naturally he's going to help his new friends out. But, of course, he's a pony, so friendship is very important to him. Um, but also, he was just coming from a completely different frame of reference. And so in a very short period of time, we got into some really interesting and awkward conversations, which I think makes for fun, really short games. Yeah. Um, uh, similarly, um, I, I, a friend of mine ran a short Pugmire, like three session Pugmire game uh, for me and some other people. And it's the first time I got to play Pugmire. I was like, oh, cool. Um, and I made a St. Bernard because I hadn't really played with the St. Bernard. We had some in the art, but I had actually done anything with, with that, that uh-huh. family yet. Um, and so uh, I decided that uh, most of the St. Bernard family ultimately go into the church. And he was a rare who didn't, well, didn't go into the church. Uh, and he wanted to be worthy of his father's cask so he could one day wear his father's cask around his neck with pride. Uh, and it gave me enough of a contrast to the other player characters who were all playing various versions of, of slightly better D&D-ish, D&D-ish murder hobos. Uh, so they're a little more mercantile. Uh, and so I got to be, in some ways, kind of the, the conscience of the group. No, we shouldn't do that. Um, but also... Uh, because these are my friends and I want to be a good dog and I want to help these people. I, I had lots of reasons to go along with what the group wants. Uh, and I find those roles satisfying personally for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense that the, the characters we find the most rewarding. And again, I think the same goes for GMs who get to watch people play and enjoy their characters are the ones who want to be involved with the other player characters in some way or other. It doesn't mm-hmm. always have to be positive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, people with some kind of ambition they want to fulfill, some kind of flaw uh, that they are either trying to overcome or will constantly set them back. It's... It, it, I don't don't mean to sound too condescending, but it will anyway. It, but when I say it's not rocket science, I mean to say that there's a lot of characters on TV, in movies, and the reason they work as protagonists is because they do that very thing. It's because they are the individual that is able to assemble a group or yeah. play a part in a group. Uh, mm. I know it gets, um, right now, due to various uh, awful Joss Whedon-related things, Buffy is under the microscope right now. Uh, yeah. But one thing that works incredibly well in Buffy is the team dynamic. And the fact that all of the characters play off of each other uh, and and cover for each other's flaws yeah. so fantastically yeah. well, uh, even to the point that, and I think what what's most remarkable about Buffy is that a character like Giles, who, if you were looking at this in a D and D style, would be far and above the rest in terms of his level is still on equal footing as part of the group. He just fills a niche that the rest of them do not. And that that means he's a really captivating character to watch. And likewise, he would work in a role-playing game of same. So if you don't have the Buffy role-playing game made by Eden Studios way back when, you can always get They Came From Beyond the Grave because that fulfills the same function. (laughs) (laughs) So I I will say with all this Joss Whedon stuff going on, I... uh... 
I at first was like, oh, I guess I'm not going to stream Buffy anymore because I don't want to give him my money. And then I was like, wait a minute. My money also goes to all of the actors um, who I love. And I love Buffy and it will always be a part of my life. I I grew up with it. I was always like I was Dawn's age when when Dawn showed up because myself and Michelle Trachtenberg are the same age. Um, And so I was always like three years behind the like Buffy crew. You know, they were going to college when I was a sophomore in high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I, I grew up with them and I and I loved them. And I do think that that show informed a lot about how I think about group dynamics, because everyone does have such a specific role. And when someone leaves the show for whatever reason, someone else shows up that kind of fulfills that role. And yeah. I, I find that really fascinating. Um, you know, there's it, it's, it's just such a good show to the point where this is a total tangent. And I don't care. Uh, I found out recently that my boyfriend has not actually seen all of Buffy. Uh-oh. And I'm not sure how we're dating. <laughs> um, because he is, he has seen enough of it that whenever I made references, he's kind of been like, oh, yeah. And I just thought he had seen it. And so now we're watching Buffy. Um, oh, no. We, we we skipped the first two seasons because he's, A, he's seen them, and B, I think they're skippable. Um, but we're watching season three. We're going to watch it all the way through. It is very important to me. I'm not sure how I'm dating somebody that has not seen all of Buffy, but <sighs> <laughs> I'm fixing it. I'm fixing it now. And so, also, I am watching The Clone Wars for him. So, you know, there's there a trade-off happening. One of my uh, favorite characters to play was not necessarily a team player, but someone who very much had a lot of flaws. So he had a lot of um, benefits that he could bring to the group, uh, but wasn't always... It certainly wasn't a pleasant character, and this was uh, an actor in Call of Cthulhu by the name of Hiram Gold, who I ended up adapting for a Vampire the Requiem book, in fact, as uh, as a head of a ghoul family, I think. Um, but he was, it was 1920s Hollywood silent movie actor who was very much sort of grease paint flaking around the edges, uh, track marks up his arm, very much past the point of ripeness. Mm-hmm. And his, a bit, uh, he was, I know, I think we were talking about uh, credit rating recently. I think we mentioned it recently yeah. in a chat. But his main purpose was to do things like use credit rating, you know, well, don't you recognize who I am? I'm Hiram Gold, kind of mm. thing. And, uh, you know, high and persuade and fast talk. He could do the things that he could do well, and therefore the group of investigators needed him. But what was most interesting for him and interesting for the Keeper, the GM in Call of Cthulhu, was what was basically driving him personally, his demons, essentially, and ultimately how we could loop that around to the other characters, how we could basically create that connection between him and the others through, ultimately, they became the only people he could trust because clearly his studio was going to dump him, his manager was going to dump him, he wasn't going to have an agent, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In the end, the only people that he would have left are these individuals who he has been to the uh, back of hell and beyond with, and they were able to help him out of a slump. And 
essentially rejuvenate his life, which was a wonderful arc to play. But it mm. was all through the flaws. If he if he was right. just a moneyed, uh, sort of entitled and you know, and also healthy with it, he wouldn't have been an interesting character. There would have been nothing for him to aim for if he could just go out and do whatever he wanted without consequence. But he mm. constantly had addiction hanging over him. Uh, the bad the people that he had burned in Hollywood were sometimes out to get him, and that really led to interesting stories for for me to play. So I think flaws, uh, as as Dixie pointed out earlier really help make a character and not just for the purpose of buying merits in the old um, right. World of Darkness style but, <laughs> but but flaws so that you can really sort of delve into what makes your character tick and I don't think it matters what game you're playing uh, a character who has something that they can trip over usually a part of their own psyche is brilliant for storytelling uh, uh, yeah, regardless of setting. And I do think it's even true of uh, non-player characters, uh, particularly characters that, that come back again and again, even antagonists. Um, having that kind of, of personal hook makes you want to go after that character over and over again. Um, yeah. And it, could be, it could be really challenging to make a really good villain, but if you do it and you do it right... Players almost regret taking taking them out, you know. And it's like I kind of want to see this guy come back again, you know. Um, I will say one challenge I put for myself recently, and I'm pretty happy that it turned out. Is um, I think I mentioned on the podcast I'm running a Marvel superheroes game, and uh, the the person they're going after is, is uh, Kang the Conqueror, who is a time traveler, uh, and they have been they've been they've been running into him out of order. So um, his timeline and the player character's timeline, they're not in sync. And so the first session, he hated them completely. And they're like, well, why does this guy hate us? We don't understand. And then they went back and they did some stuff. And then they found out that what the person that they thought they were helping and inadvertently screwed over was actually Kang at a younger point in time. That Oh, that's why he hates us. That makes sense. Yeah, we screwed that up. <laughs> And it was a challenge, but it was really interesting because they, they got the emotional payoff at the front and then had to go back and figure out how that emotional payoff worked. But it also, to a degree, once the players realized it's a time travel story and enough of them had been familiar with the kind of structures of those kinds of stories, were leaning into it and trying to, okay, let's, I could do this, but this would really makes narrative sense. So I'm going to go ahead and do that instead. So that was a bit of a buy-in. But it's the same thing. It's like they had an emotional investment in getting the character to a particular point they knew he had to be at. Um, and just by the nature of the structure, the players knew exactly where he needed to be at as I, as a storyteller, needed him to be at without me having to tell them, hey, I need you to go here. So that worked out really well. But um, even with more linear characters, um, had been, having a history and building off them can make for a more compelling relationship than just here's yet another faceless villain you have to face. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And uh, good choice with Kang the Conqueror, by the way. I think he's a fantastic Marvel villain. I understand he's going to be in uh, the new Ant-Man 
movie when that is eventually released. So I've I've heard that, that but I mainly fun. picked him because he's also his his background is so goddamn confusing that I couldn't really screw it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that's the brilliant thing about time travelers; they can just appear anywhere and uh, and not have any knowledge of having met you before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, yeah, and going back to Mummy the Curse. <laughs> Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I will say that whenever I need to make a character and I don't really have much inspiration, I personally like to take two or three fictional characters I like and mush them together. Yes. Like, I'll take, a, you know, a, a few traits from this one and a few traits from this one. And maybe they look kind of like this one and then I'll mush them all together and be like, that's my character. Um, and so if I ever have a moment where I don't know what to do, I can just think like, what would either one of these characters do? And which mm-hmm. one makes more sense here? Do y'all do that? I, I I tend to do more um, archetypal character as played by a famous actor. Um, so, for example, I was playing in a, a fantasy game, which was um, set in kind of a... We wanted to play more of the, a, a Middle Eastern flair to it, but, you know, less problematic. Um, but it's like, so we probably had some people, characters of color. Um, and so I made up a character that I, I had pitched as uh, King Arthur as played by... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name. The, the lead for Lupin. Uh, Omar Sy? Omar Sy, thank you. Um, and players immediately got it. It's like, okay, you know, it's not going to be King Arthur as we understand him. It's, he's going to be a noble character. He's going to be very charismatic. He's going to have his own personal things. He's going to be a little tricky, a little, um, uh, uh, very, just very easy for people to, to fall in love with. Uh, and okay, cool. I got that, you know? Um, so, so, but I've also other times done, like you said, where it's like, um, uh, so-and-so meets so-and-so kind of thing. Um, for a star Wars game, it was, it was, uh, uh I don't know how I phrased it. Um, it was, uh, Han Solo meets Hawkeye. Cause I wanted a very much kind of a, a sharpshooter kind of character who was still a bit of a rogue, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, I've done both of those, but I usually tend to prefer the, the actor because especially for iconic actors, people are so familiar with them playing certain kinds of roles. They can usually, that's a good shorthand to kind of get them right into the moment. Right. Yeah, yeah I can see that. Uh, it's, it's a good question because I've never really examined, and I probably should have before this episode, how I come to the source, I guess, of a character idea. Uh, and I'm sure unconsciously I have taken characters from media many, many times and probably merged them as well. But usually I'm... I'm just trying to think now. I'm taking my myself through the steps of how I go <laughs> about creating a character. Uh, and well, for for me, it's not about the stats. It's about their personality when I actually go to play them. Like, I can make a character and be like, okay, this character looks good on paper. I like yeah. them. How do I play them? So, like, uh, Jane Giantsbane, who I, I talk about all the time, uh, is a mixture of uh, Kaylee from Firefly and mm-hmm. Betty from Rat Queens. Okay. So she is... A little brash, a little bit of a rogue. She is a halfling, you know. She's very like she's loud and and silly, uh, but she's a halfling who was raised by dwarves, so she has that like you know, little dog thinks they're a big dog kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that that worked. Like those those characters worked because she's a little Kaylee because she's always very cheerful and she's very happy and she wants to help. But she's a little Betty because she's also like too sure of herself, <laughs> and that that worked. You know, it was a it was a good combination for me to like hit on. Yeah. 
I've I've known uh, in a long game of Vampire the Masquerade that I played. Uh, I a long chronicle, I should say. I basically played three stages of Matthew McConaughey. Um, I missed missed out the <laughs> uh, the comedy romantic comedy leaning Matthew McConaughey's uh, where on all the posters he's in he is leaning against something. Uh, but I remember I played. Uh, I started off with Killer Joe, where he is just an unrepentant asshole. Uh, this he was a gangrel uh, Alastor. Uh, this character. So hunting down red listers, and then moved on from Killer Joe to the next phase as his character from Mud, which is a fantastic movie. Very not many people have seemed to have seen it, uh, where he seems to be going through a redemptive arc and has consigned himself to an island in the middle of a swamp. And ultimately, I was playing Matthew McConaughey, Circa True Detective, season one, where he right. is very much redeemed in a sense because he has come to some kind of mental conclusion that he is uh, uh, he he understands why he has done everything he has and has embraced sort of nihilistic attitude as a result mm. uh, but yeah so i've i guess in a way i merged mcconaughey's but or i played mcconaughey's in sequence <laughs> Uh, but uh, and I think he's a marvelous actor. But he but he was also very easy to play as three shades of McConaughey without ever feeling like it was a different character. Right. <laughs> but then again, I'm not Matthew McConaughey, as as is quite apparent. No, but um, uh, a while ago, um, we had talked about accents, for example, and, and you know the certain kind of accents that some people feel comfortable with versus others. And I was reading an article about ways to do accents that aren't stereotypical. Right. And therefore potentially offensive. And one mm. of them was doing an impression of another actor doing an impression. Um, and so that kind of Matthew McConaughey thing makes sense. Like, of course you're not going to be Matthew McConaughey, but your impression of Matthew McConaughey, then playing that character gives you enough lenses to work through that you, you end up getting a kind of a shorthand distinctive voice in your head almost immediately. It's like, okay, he sounds like yeah. this and probably act like this. Um, in a similar fashion, uh, when I was teaching Pugmire to uh, uh, a group of people who had never played tabletop role-playing games before, I just said, pretend to be your dog. What would your dog do if your dog could walk and talk and make decisions? What would they do in these situations? And immediately, they're like, oh, my dog's very playful and friendly, so they would try to go up and make friends with them. Or my dog's very greedy and would try to snatch that food away. Um, and they were immediately role-playing because they had because dog owners always have this very strong voice in their head for what their dog acts like it sounds like and just start using that voice um so uh, uh yeah using a shorthand for mashing up a couple of characters is, is is a good way to not only get a strong sense of what the character feels like but also is a good way to kind of what the character sounds like and how you talk and portray the character even if you're not doing an accent yeah i mean in my v5 home game i'm playing a vampire who was made in the victorian era um but then was in torpor for a long time so now she's in 2018 um, but she's still essentially only a, you know, three or five year vampire. Um, and I'm, I, I'm using the actress Joanna Vanderham for all of her pictures, which is fine because I like Joanna mm -hmm. Vanderham. And I am also using a little bit of her voice from when she was on the Paradise, but also it's kind of a mashup of like every costume drama that I watch. <laughs> sure, right. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I watch a lot of costume drama. So like, she's a little Downton Abbey. She's a little The Paradise. She's a little Bridgerton now, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's fine. 
and it's it's, it's working for me and uh it, it, it is interesting though because me and my boyfriend recently started watching warrior uh which was a cinemax show that is on hbo max now it's super good it's about the tongue wars in san francisco mm-hmm. uh and she's in that but she's doing an american accent <laughs> so i can't like introduce him to what i'm used to her sounding like because she's mm. a scottish actress but yeah right weird. yeah well, I think we've covered some lots of lovely ground. I do hope you listeners have now taken this away and realised this is how you've got to play your characters from now on. Uh, don't start falling back into old habits because we will know and we are the elite of role players. So <laughs> if, if you're not taking characters from existing media and mashing them up, if you're not playing characters who are invested in teamwork and are otherwise flawed, then there's no hope for you. Just uh, give it up. Go back yeah. to Borgesi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as you're having a good time, people around you are having a good time, you're doing great. Right, thank exactly. you for Thank you for the save there, Dixie. Uh, <laughs> but yes, yeah, the most important thing is that you're having a good time. And although we uh, went on a little about the sort of Merc character at the beginning, uh, for some groups, I have no doubt that is going to be exciting and it's going to be fun to play a squad of mercenaries that going through space for instance and solving crimes it's that that's 40k in a in a fashion and people love it so one person's excellent character is another person's dud and i don't think that there's anything wrong with having different tastes just make sure everyone at the table and especially your gm is comfortable with the role you want to play and that well hopefully if you are the GM, you'll be able to get some excellent story ideas out of it. So, Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So, yes, before we wrap up uh, our almost an hour, well, just over an hour, I should say, in length episode, is there anything we should be promoting right now? Other than Virtual Horicon, which, as uh, Dixie has pointed out, is currently ongoing. Well, no, it's about to start. Well, if you're listening to this right when it comes out, it's about to start. If you're listening to this anytime after like 4 p.m. on Friday, then it's ongoing. There you go. Uh, so do do look up Virtual Horicon because all of us will be there in various capacities. Uh, we'll yeah. be on panels, running games, playing in games, doing workshops, the whole shebang. So do look it up. But there's also going to be fantastic people there from other companies and talking about all kinds of games. So don't just limit yourself. Obviously, check out our stuff, but don't just limit yourself to <laughs> us uh, because I'm sure the Gehenna Gaming crew have got lots for you to discover. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing in uh, our Squeaks in the Deep game that Eddie's running. I'm yes. playing in They Came from Camp Murder Lake that you're running, Matthew. Yeah. And I'm also playing in uh, Free Logins Alien RPG Friday night. It's the second time you've played Alien, isn't it? Uh, it is. I have now, uh, as as of me playing Alien, I will have played Alien 200% more times than I have seen Alien. <laughs> or perhaps infinity more times than you've seen Alien. Y- yes, because I've never <laughs> seen Alien. Uh, <laughs> I have... Yes, I will watch it someday, but it's one of those movies that I know all the major beats, and I just don't feel like I need to watch it. Well, that's right. fair enough. No one here is prescribing it to you unless it comes to Christmas and we need to do another watch along. But that's, no, that's no, a no. good movie. Right, no, if, if, if it comes around Christmas we have to watch a movie, it's going to be like Aliens vs. Predator or something. Oh, God. I was, <laughs> I, you can I watch was... Prometheus, which I've seen. 
Yeah, oh um, the Prometheus temptation is there because I think there's going to be a lot of frustration. Uh, it's not good. I, I was once engaged to someone who thought Aliens vs. Predator was an excellent movie, and it, well, that wasn't what Terminator... I was going to say, is that, is that, <laughs> yeah, we're done. <laughs> you, you don't watch Buffy, you don't like... You like Aliens vs. Predator. Yeah. That's it's, what I'm uh, Yeah, it's uh, a tick in the box. Uh, the wrong box. Uh, but yeah, Alien vs. Predator. Well, let's remember that, because if we ever want to torture ourselves, that... Unlike Battle of the Five Armies, that's a just genuinely bad film, I think, AVP. Speaking, every Speaking time of, that we go to watch a bad movie, I just want to always put forth Battlefield Earth. That's true. It, it, for a time, for for the early 2000s, I would say that was the pinnacle of bad movies. Yeah, it's yeah. great. So I've been watching The People vs. O.J. Simpson recently, and so mm. I keep seeing John Travolta, and I'm just like... I've seen you with dreadlocks and platform boots stomping around whining about things and I can't like I, I I didn't take you very seriously before that but now I just can't at all like what watching Pulp Fiction is weird now now that I see Battlefield Earth you know <laughs> he, he is an actor with a uh, wild variety of roles uh, some excellent some very much not but then again, I suppose it's yeah. very few actors who just do nothing but star-studded hits. Uh, everyone's got to have some clunkers. It's just John Travolta has hoarded a lot. <laughs> Speaking of bad films, I think I may have found a bad film that either of you have seen, which makes me very happy. What's that? Defula. I thought you were talking about that. I was like, is that real? It is a film made in the 70s that is done entirely in ASL. And it is god awful. Okay. It, it, it's about a death vampire, um, and everyone he attacks also somehow knows ASL. And I guess there's um, a voiceover. It says the whole time. It's in, intermittently. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my favorite part is when um, occasionally there'll be music stings, and then half in like half of the music sting, the audio producer seems to realize, oh shit, this is for a deaf audience, and they just cuts off. <laughs> it, it's 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 gloriously bad. Well, we'll add that to the shortlist. I think Defula is it on Amazon Prime? No, it is. I, a friend of mine made a digital copy of the VHS tape that he happened to have. It's I, you oh, can't no. find it. It's it's, uh, it's 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 so bad that like people aren't even picking it up for streaming. It's oh it's, well, you know what that means, Eddie. It means we're going to have to put it in the recommended uh, reading or viewing list at the beginning right, of one because of our... someone can find it. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. That's I'll, amazing. I'll put it in They Came From Beyond the Grave, <laughs> along with uh, every other movie no one will ever be able to find. I mean, to be fair, it's also marginally offensive because it's implied that the vampire is evil because he's deaf so it's it's got some also problematic issues but it's clearly going for that blank exploitation era of the 70s yeah and this was yeah. deaf exploitation which was just really weird a very narrow genre i'll admit <laughs> but, of uh, one film <laughs> yeah uh, they tried it realized it didn't quite work and moved on uh, but never returned to non-sploitation to my group. But at least John Travolta wasn't in it, so he has that going for it. Mm-hmm. 
so other than John Travolta, Virtual Horicon, and Defula, is there anything else we should uh, <laughs> sing the praises of in our closing minutes, or shall we wrap up? Uh, uh, oh, the, um, what? I was about to say, we have a, a Indiegogo coming soon. We do. That's very exciting. Victorian mm. Mage. Yes. Mm. Um, and or we should is talk it about Mage that because Victorian Age? It's some kind of Victorian Mage game. Uh, I don't know the actual <laughs> title of it because it changes every week. Um, but no, uh, to clarify, it, we, it is going to be on Indiegogo um, as opposed to Kickstarter. So if you're looking for it on Kickstarter, you will not find it. It is we, um, we're we're trying a new platform uh, with this, uh, and some people have already asked, uh, "Are we going to go completely Indiegogo?" Um, and the answer to that is no, because we've also been announcing. If you're listening to the uh, adventure radio dramas, uh, that adventure is coming soon on Kickstarter. So this is just an experiment. We're going to see how it goes. Um, if it goes well, maybe we'll do more Indiegogo campaigns. Um, but right now, we're not looking to leave Kickstarter. But uh, Victoria Mage, I, I've seen the the page of it uh, that's been put together, and it looks really cool. The art looks fantastic. Um, it's an exciting, interesting time period. It, it's it's mm. definitely written to be as uh, diverse as possible. And we're going to have uh, Ian and um, Chris Allen uh, on the show to talk about the, the, the co-devs for the book. So, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Mm, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that one. And it's, uh, I know I've uh, very much harped on about the art in uh, Master of the Mythos and Dragon, but the art for Victorian Mage is looking stellar as well. I think people mm -hmm. are going to be suitably impressed. Lots of purple and gold, perhaps unsurprisingly. Shock. So do look out for that. Yeah, shock. shock or brass. Right. Maybe it's brass. It could be. More appropriate. So, Eddie, if people wanted to find you online and talk to you about brass buttons, handles, and other fixtures, where would they go? Uh, they could find me at um, pugsteady.com, and from there, get access to all my social media accounts. And what about you, Dixie? I think you can find me, in addition to being at Virtual Horror all weekend, at Dixie Saganite on pretty much all social media. And they can find me on matthewdawkins.com and they can find me lingering around the Onyx Path Discord, which we always link in the show notes, and you are invited to join, as well as the Onyx Path Forum. But do do check us out on Discord. It is a buzzing hive of activity where there's a separate server for every single one of our games and people are always chatting and it's such a lovely community as well not to extol its virtues too highly but we are we rarely seem to be afflicted with drama when we are it gets shut down and it's just a wonderful place to go for people enthusiastic about the games we love so do check out the discord and with that said many worlds one part.